This is a Voice in the Wilderness podcast channel. Today's topic is going to be along lines of it is harder for a layman who is not religious to be pious and devout than it is for a religious. But first the prayer. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost, Amen. All that I am, all that I have, all that I do shall be consecrated to the service, honor, and glory and exaltation of the Immaculate Heart of Mary, the Sacred Heart of Jesus, and the Heavenly Kingdom. In Jesus' name I pray, Immaculate Heart of Mary, please pray for us. Sacred Heart of Jesus, please pray for us. Amen. Now, uh, the title of this podcast, or I should, not the title, but the topic of this podcast is probably going to be provocative to some of my listeners. Because it is at least in uh, Neotrad and, uh, well, even the Vatican II sex circles and set of Acontis circles, that a lot of people think that religious, I'm talking about Catholic religious, the monks, the nuns, the priests, who have to take a pow of chastity, poverty, and obedience that their, their path to sanctity that well there, there's two misconceptions here I, I want to be brief about this I've already covered this um, part of it Part of the attitude is, is well, I don't need to be pious in my own life. Pious or devout because that's what the religious are for. And then secondly, um, well, actually, I think I just summed it up. I think I just summed it up. The, the, the thought for a lot of people who consider themselves true Catholics that they actually have to be as pious and devout as any nun or monk, even though they may have families and kids, or for that matter, just maybe singular lay, uh, I'm sorry, single, single layman, never enters into their thought process or their equation. Before I start this, Topic off. I want to give a quote from St. Louis de Montfort. Now, for those of you who may not have heard about this particular saint, he is best known for his writings on the Blessed Virgin Mary and this is just coming from me, so you take it for what it's worth. I consider him and St. John Eudes the first two modern, what is known in Catholicism as Mariologists. Except, well, in both cases, they wrote for lay people. I'm not, I'm going to qualify about St. John Eudes. Um, I'm not sure if his writings were meant for his order and just happened to be published for laymen. So I'm not, I'm not 100% on St. John Eudes. However, St. Louis de Montfort did, his, his writings were meant for lay people. And um, just to give you context, St. Louis de Montfort wrote 
in the late 1600s and the early 1700s. So here's the quote. You are like crusaders united to fight against the world. Not like religious who retreat from the world lest they be overcome, but like brave and valiant warriors on the battlefield who refuse to retreat or even yield an inch. Be brave and fight courageously. Now obviously when he wrote this, he was not... Writing obviously for monks or nuns. And just a brief description or context, I should say. When he talks about religious. In the Catholic context, he's talking about the nuns and the monks. And by the way, you can be a monk without being ordained to the priesthood. But regardless, if you are a nun or if you are a monk, or for that matter, if you're a priest um, who's who's uh I forget what uh what they call these priests they're basically they're part of a religious order and for those of you who don't know I'm going to give three three of the most obvious examples they may be a Jesuit they may be a Dominican or they may be a Franciscan they're part of that order but instead of being in a monastery they actually um serve parishes but they, they do so under the auspices of their religious order. And then, in, in Catholic terms, there is known as what... I'm sorry. There is what is known as a secular priest. Basically, a secular priest, they don't belong to a religious order. They take the powers of poverty, chastity, and obedience... But they don't have a particular order that they answer to. They just serve the needs of their parishes. There's a reason why I'm going into this detail. As far as I... As far as I'm aware, St. Louis de Montfort was a secular priest. Now, he did have an apostolate without getting too deep in the weeds, at the time when he was writing about the Blessed Virgin Mary, both him and St. John Eudes, a lot of the French hierarchy, the bishops, were under the heresy of Jansenism, which basically is a form of Catholic uh, Calvinism. And so... Because obviously the Blessed Virgin Mary is a very Catholic concept. If you are under the Protestant concept of Calvinism, you're going to reject Mary as the co-redemptress and her... Um, and her part in her son's salvific plan for humanity. And so, when St. Louis de Montfort um, was attempting his apostolate, he actually had to go to Rome and get a, 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 a commission directly from Rome so that the Cal, uh, the Jansenist or Calvinist hierarchy in France could not interfere with what he was doing. The 
there's more to that story, but for, for all intents and purposes, that's all we need to know. The reason I'm talking about this is, is the quote that I just mentioned from St. Louis to Montfort, I believe was aimed not at the monks or the nuns who were in monasteries or convents, but for the average parish priests and not just for the average parish priests, but for the average layman who was striving for piety and devotion and spiritual union with our Lord Jesus and His Blessed Mother. Now, when I first read this quote, I, when I first read it, I thought he was being a little, that he was actually criticizing uh, religious orders. Because, and by the way, just, just for those who don't know about Catholicism, a monk or a nun enters into a monastery or a convent and once they enter into that convent, unless they have permission from either the abbot or the abbess, they cannot leave the compound. So they are basically within the four walls of their self-contained little society and have no or little contact with the outside world. Once again, unless they have permission from the abbot or the abbess to leave the monastery. And like I said, when I first read that quote, I was thinking, oh, he's, he's actually being critical of the Catholic religious. However... With, with a little bit of grace, I've come to the realization that it wasn't necessarily a criticism of the religious who go into monastery and convents so much as it was an encouragement to the secular priests and the laymen who were attempting piety and devotion while in the maelstrom that is known as secular society. And basically a maelstrom is, is just, um, it's a very, very dangerous storm. Now, I believe just based on what I've read that in what is erroneously known as the Dark Ages which by the way was propagated by uh, uh, 19th century secular historians to denigrate anything Catholic that some of the monasteries they started off as a place to people who felt cold, uh, called to closer union with the Lord Jesus or His Blessed Mother could go and concentrate on their spiritual life. And the reason why Catholic priests take vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience, and why the Catholic Church, outside of the first 12 apostles, never had married clergy, is because a married man 
cannot devote his time to his uh, to his flock. And anyone who's ever been a Protestant minister understands this concept. Well, they may understand it, but they'll never admit it. That if you have to take care of your wife and and your kids, you're not you're you're not going to be free twenty four seven for your for whatever the needs of your flock are. So that's why the um. Catholic clergy takes those vows. But um I think when when the first monastery started off they were expressly intended for um for spiritual training to unite the communities into closer union with Lord Jesus and His Blessed Mother. However, during the Dark Ages, when you had the barbarian invasions, you had the Vikings, you had the Huns. These guys were looting and pillaging and some of the, the monasteries by necessity because the barbarians and they're called barbarians for a reason were destroying invaluable um, antiquity knowledge these, these monasteries and some of the convents became centers of learning and knowledge by necessity because and and don't get me wrong the barbarians are called barbarians for a reason there were some obviously there were some uh, monasteries and and uh, convents that got pillaged and sacked because they had valuable religious items inside of them but some of these monasteries because they were isolated were able to not just preserve the knowledge of antiquity but also helped preserve the early writings of the apostles the church fathers and the doctors of the church um, up until the time of the barbarian invasions. So, obviously, I don't think St. Louis de Montfort, who would have been, you know, because of his time and place, was being critical of monasteries and convents, he would have understood that they, you know, that God, you know, he, he would have understand the concept of divine providence and he would have understood that these things were there for a reason. However, given their self-contained nature... The, the, the concept, as I touched on earlier, of a, con uh, of a monastery or a convent is, is so that you can concentrate on nothing else but union with God. And there was a reason why I talked about the, um, the Catholic priests and hierarchy taking a vow of poverty, chastity, and obedience. And that is that, you know, like I said, the reason you never had married clergy, and let me make this clear, because there's some Vatican II autists who try to defend the indefensible, 
meaning Vatican II Council, who say, well, there were priests with girlfriends. There were priests who were secretly... Yeah, they were doing it against the rules of the church. They did not have the permission to do what they were doing. And like any other blatant sinner, or at least in the time of the Middle Ages, they were the exception. They were not the rule. Unlike Vatican II, I might add. Anyway... Um, that's why I went into the explanation of why they never had, um, why the, the Catholic Church never allowed, um, married clergy was because a married man cannot devote his time and his effort, not just toward the needs of his flock, but also to grow in the, the very necessary piety and devotion that it takes to serve God. Now, when St. Louis de Montfort compares the secular priests and the um, pious and devout laity to crusaders, one last thing before I get into my next um, my next uh, point. Um, no, actually, this is this is gonna fit in. So never mind. So the reason why St. Louis de Montfort compared the Secular clergy, in other words, those that were not under orders, are not under a religious order, and pious and devout laymen to, to crusaders, on the part of the clergy, it's very simple. A religious in a monastery, and it doesn't matter if it's a monk or a nun, well, actually, if uh, a, mon a nun cannot... By her very nature, she does not, she cannot be a priest. Therefore, in the case of nuns, they have to bring in a special priest to hear the nuns' confessions and to give them spiritual direction. But in the case of the monks, if I'm not mistaken, I believe the abbot is the one who, because he is the spiritual director, he hears the, the prayers, or I'm sorry, the confessions of his monks. Now, since the monks are in a self-contained society, the abbot or the confessor who's doing the confessions inside the monasteries or the convents these are self-contained societies. They are not tainted, at least they shouldn't be, in principle, with the things of secular society. So, they are not going to hear things which anybody who's led an eventful life knows that goes on in secular society. I don't think I should have to, to give examples. Anyone who's read a regular life who, who, who doesn't have their head buried in the sand knows secular society is full of things that are incompatible with piety and devotion. And so, a secular priest would have to hear the confessions of his, the people in his parish. And even though he is under the, the vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience, by the nature of what he's called to do, By necessity, he has to interact with 
what I would call secular society and his, you know, and his very secular laity. And that takes a great deal of spiritual fortitude. Because imagine, just imagine, that let's just say you're a secular priest for a diocese and you've taken the vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience. You're not within the self-contained four walls of a monastery where you're protected from the things that normal people, even Catholics, do. So... You've taken those three vows and you're hearing you're hearing about fornication, you're hearing about adultery, you're hearing about greed. You're hearing about uh um there's a special word for this, but cheating people out of their money. You're hearing about very very major deadly sins and depending on your parish or where you're located at at least you're hearing it because every we're, 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 we're talking the late 1600s uh, early 1700s every or uh, I'm not going to say every most parish churches had confession at least once a day but once again, depending on the circumstances, you might have to listen to confession two or three times a day. And you are being barraged with other people's sins, deadly sins. And anybody who's striving for piety and devotion knows that the spiritual writers say that we got to try in so far as possible to separate ourselves from the temptations of this world. Now, parish priest duties that you can't separate yourself from that. So that you have to make heroic efforts, spiritually speaking, of course, to keep your piety and devotion while at the same time dealing with the world around you. Anybody who's familiar with the Crusades know the, the Crusades were made up of religious orders such as the Templars and the Hospitallers who were fighting monks who took religious vows and lived as religious, although they fought in battles, and then just secular knights who weren't necessarily under the same restric restrictions as the military orders were, but if, you know, if they were living their Catholic faith the way they should be, we're trying to be pious and devout and we're going on these crusades. Once again, people are people. Some were doing it out of um, necessity because they, it was a, a penance that they had to perform. And some people were doing it out of zealous love for, for uh, our Lord Jesus and his heavenly kingdom. But anybody who's read their Catholic history knows that the Crusaders, for the most part, not obviously be, whenever you're dealing with human beings, you're dealing with individuals, but for the most part, most of those Crusaders were valiant, um, zealous, and... Um, Courageous. 
And they fought against incredible odds. And so when St. Louis de Montfort compares the, the secular clergy and the laity to crusaders, it's a very apt comparison. You just have to have the eyes to see that anybody who's trying to keep their piety and devotion in the secular realm, and I'm going to get into the context on my next point, knows that if you have no buffers between you and the world, and you're trying to be pious and devout, you're literally like those crusaders who used to go into battle at 50 to 1 or 100 to 1. And I've heard in some cases of some crusaders having battles where the odds were 200 or more to 1. And just going full tilt for the glory and honor of Lord Jesus and his blessed mother in the heavenly kingdom into that into that fight spiritually speaking it's the same thing for somebody in the secular realm who's trying to be pious and devout now this is the context there's a reason I talked about the time period which St. Louis de Montfort wrote. And honestly speaking, human beings being human beings and Catholic society has never been perfect. Secular society in general has never been conducive to piety and devotion. But he wrote in the late 1600s to the early 1700s. Now this was at best, let's just say, maybe 100, 150 years after the Protestant revolt destroyed Christendom. Now, that would have meant that for whatever human faults and frailties of the secular society in the time of the Protestant Revolt, that because the Protestant Revolt unmoored Catholic society, from its Catholic royalty and its Catholic unity that the very beginnings of the seeds of modernism were starting around the time times that St. Louis de Montfort was writing. Now, once again, I'm not claiming the Catholic society, secular society, has ever been a paradise. It hasn't. I've made that clear in multiple episodes. However, the Protestant revolt, when it was finalized, planted the seeds of modernist thought into the... into the minds of pious and devout Catholics who, if the Protestant revolt had not happened, would probably, they would have obviously had their, their faults, but would not, you know, because everything about the Protestant revolt is called a revolt for a reason. It was revolting against God's revealed truth in the Catholic Church. And so it had planted the seeds. 
And so when St. Louis de Montfort wrote what he wrote, I'm sure at that time, he thought, oh, wow, things are pretty bad. Things are pretty bad. And I'm sure throughout the ages, regular, pious and devout secular clergy or laymen, you know, have thought like, say in the 1850s, oh, wow, it's not, it can't get any worse than this. Or in the early 1900s, oh, it can't get any worse than this. I have stated in previous episodes, I think one of the biggest heirs of the Catholic hierarchy, and I'm talking bishops and some of the popes, was that they didn't recognize, even though they had the prophecies of Our Lady of Good Success and Our Lady of um, La Salette that implicitly stated, you know, in the 20th century, the Catholic Church, as they understood it, and I'm talking about the popes and the clergy, was going to be destroyed and replaced by a counterfeit church. And I have made this criticism of them and, and said that um, I'm going to be charitable be, and, and for another thing too, for my autistic set of contests and neotrad listeners out there, or even the uh, Vatican II types, I don't want to be accused of rash judgment or being presumptuous on the Catholic uh, hierarchy or clergy. So what I'll put is this. As charitably as I can, they were guilty guilty of a lack of imagination. And when I say a lack of imagination, I'm just I'm speaking I'm speaking from just a natural level. I'm not even talking spiritually a lack of imagination. Because if you're leading the correct spiritual life, there's no imagination that's involved. You know, if if you're in if you're striving for union with Lord Jesus and his blessed mother, if you're doing what you're supposed to be doing, they they will enlighten you. They will give you holy wisdom and discernment. Now I have read a lot of, well, I, I, I don't want to say a lot, but I've read enough, I'll put it that way, I've read enough um, Catholic writings from the 1700s to prior to Vatican II that outside of a few outlier examples... Most of it, it just wasn't the the hierarchy in the, the priests because they're the leaders. So their attitudes, by very nature of leadership, are going to filter down to the laity. So the laity, for the most part, I have to assume, held the same views as their their clergy and their hierarchy, in which the thought that the visible Catholic Church would be infiltrated by its enemies, overthrown, and a counterfeit church put in its place to send souls to hell, to mislead souls into hell, was beyond the realms of their imagination. And the reason why I say that 
Um, this is a lack of imagination, and I'm keeping it strictly on the natural level. Is if you lived in the time of the American Revolution, the French Revolution, the secular the secularization of European society, I'm not including America because America's always been a secular society. And you could not even contemplate a scenario where your enemies would, would infiltrate your church and destroy it from within... I consider that a lack of imagination. Some people would call it spiritual blindness, but once again, I don't want to set off the autists, the autist Catholics in my audience by saying something like that, even though I'm going to be blunt, it's true. But I don't want to set them off. So we'll just say lack of imagination for lack of a better term. That they could see the currents and the waves of modernist society. And it and by the way, when I say this, it's not a broad brush. It's not a broad brush. I'm saying by the um the sources that I've read in the 300 years, oh, by this point, be 400 years of Catholic writings, the tenor of those writings, and I'm only going by what is written, seems to be it, the thought never entered into their heads. That, oh wow, you know, um, this church that we've been taking for granted may actually be supplanted by a counterfeit church. Part of the reason I say this is, Our Lady of Good Success appeared to a abbess in a, com uh, a, uh, a Catholic convent in Quinto, Ecuador, uh, 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 um, I want to say around the same time of the Protestant Revolt. And she prophesied to this abbess, Vatican II. Now we are talking five, well, at this point, 600 years after this prophecy, she predicted, she predicted Vatican II, or I'm sorry, prophesied, not predicted, prophesied. And as near as I can tell, nobody took this prophecy seriously. Nobody. Now, for the Marian uh, apparition at La Salette, my understanding is that both Pope Pius IX and Pope Leo XIII, you know, they looked into it. And because we have a bunch of Masonic imposters now occupying the, the Vatican, we will never know if, until it gets revealed to us, Lord willing, the extent to any actions they may have taken at that time. Um... But, so around the time of the Protestant Revolt, Our Lady of Good Success prophesied Vatican II. 
And as near as my research has shown me, none of the bishops and none of the um, popes took this prophecy seriously. As a matter of fact, obviously since Vatican II, the Masonic imposters occupying have done everything in their power to discredit at worst, at best, they've tried to bury that prophecy and obscure it and to keep it from the minds of the pious and devout Catholics who otherwise would be convinced by this prophecy that Vatican II is literally a false religion. It's a false Catholicism. Now, this, this, I may, it may appear to you that I'm going far uh, astray from the original topic of how the laity who have to live in secular society are like crusaders. Trust me, I haven't forgotten where I was heading with this. I'm bringing up this, these, these Marian apparitions as instructive, instru instructive of how far from the time of St. Louis de Mont And by the way, Our Lady of, of Good Success happened around 150 years after St. Louis de Montfort wrote. This, this quote that I'm talking about. But. Um. You ignore these apparition, apparitions. And I'm, I'm aiming this obviously at the Vatican II sect members and the neo-traditionalists at your own peril. And you draw the wrong conclusions at your own peril. And if you want to try to rationalize, well, none of the, none of the popes prior to Vatican II uh, gave it their stamp of approval, you do so at your own risk. Because what I would point out to you, they may not have given it their stamp, you know, their implicit stamp of approval, but they never denounced it as a heresy either. And the bishop of the Diocese of Quinto, he gave his stamp of approval to that Marian apparition. And he would have been the best one to do so at that time, given the decentralized nature of the Catholic Church at that time. In other words, the commander on the ground is better able to assess the veracity of a report than some, some bureaucrat that's far removed from the actual battle itself. Anyhow, so imagine the fortitude, the courage, the um, zealousness that it takes in today's modern era to be zealous and devout and um, pious in your Catholicism today. Um, I mean, <laughs> it, it doesn't take 
It doesn't take an Elijah the prophet. It doesn't take a Jeremiah the prophet. It doesn't take a um, a Hosea or John the Baptist to figure out that number one, our society and culture and I'm not just talking about the world's society and culture is probably at its lowest level since pagan Rome. Because a lot of people who are secular minded think that pagan Rome was an advanced civilization because they had heating, they had cooling, blah, 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 blah. Technology is not the mark of civilization to you seculars out there who think it is. The mark of the advancement of a society is its adherence to God's revealed truth. And this is ethro ethnocentrism on the part of European Amer uh, Europeans in general and, and Americans in particular that they will call a society like Rome or Greece civilized but then turn around and talk about how barbaric the Aztecs were because they you know they had sacrificial victims and they tore the hearts out of living people but if you look at the technology that the Aztecs had, and by the way, I've read about the Aztecs uh, civilization, they might not have had some of the technological advancements as say the Romans or the Greeks, but these were not backwards people. These were the most advanced civilization on the American continent at their time. So, before you get all puffed up about, oh, technology is a mark of civilization. No, it isn't. Yeah, we have many computers in our pockets. We, we have the interwebs. We have electric cars, blah, 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 blah. We still are under the delusion that male and female are social constructs. That it is socially acceptable to mutilate children in order to fit our conceptions of what they should be. We are still under the delusion that abortion and, and, and by extension through indirect means birth control are socially acceptable. We are still under the conception that, that heaven and hell are abstractions and that you should live it up for today or for tomorrow you could die. We are under the delusion that the ends justify the means no matter how immoral or how criminal that may be. We are still under the delusion that the mark of... Um, a good person is the amount of money they bring in and how well they live and the amount of stuff that they have. And I've only scratched the surface. Unfortunately, I try to keep these to a time limit. But you get the drift. To keep your piety, devotion, and especially your zealousness. Now I'm going to end on this note. A lot of people view zealousness as a negative trait. Zealousness for a false religion or idea or ideology 
Yes, that is a negative trait. But zealousness for the one true God in his revealed religion is not. And I'll end on that. I really appreciate your time. This actually did run a, a little longer than I had anticipated. So I do appreciate you giving me your time. Um, and it doesn't matter whether you agree with me or not. Um, once again, take everything that I've said or that I've ever said, take it for what it's worth. I do care about you all as far as a failed, flawed, sinful individual can. And I pray for everyone. And I do want to see as many people get to heaven as possible. And I truly hope and pray that you guys get something out of this. Not just out of this episode, but any of the episodes that you might turn into. I hope and pray you get something out of it. So, thank you for listening. Have a good day. God bless you. Bye-bye. Fly